Welcome to the Boyd Meets World podcast. I am straight giddy this week because I just had the chance to speak with Ryan S. Clark, uh, the UW football and basketball beat writer for the Tacoma News Tribune. I was excited to interview Ryan because he's worked in so many different places and he did not disappoint whatsoever. We talked about all of his pit stops in journalism from Maine to Indiana to Texas to North Dakota to Florida and then of course to the team he now covers, uh, the Husky basketball team. He had some great stuff about Mike Hopkins that you won't want to miss. Uh, Enjoy it. I'm here with uh, Ryan S. Clark from the Tacoma News Tribune. He's the uh, Husky beat writer for UW football and basketball. Has joined us since October. Uh, just absolutely killing it. Every time I look, uh, there's a new story about exactly what I want to read, um, and that that's a credit to this man's grind. So, thank you, Ryan, for being on. First question for you is: You go by Ryan S. Clark, and I have a theory as to why. Uh, is there anything special with that, or is it just you like the you like the S in the middle of it? Wow, I, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued now. I've never heard anyone say there's a theory. So, <laughs> what do you believe the theory is? All right. Well, I was watching the post Super Bowl coverage last night, and uh, on the on the the Sports Center desk in the middle of the field is is Ryan Clark, former uh, defensive back for the Steelers, and Ryan Clark is is in media. Um, likely to have you know a, a story or uh, his name on on the Twitter feed or something like that, um, and so maybe Ryan S. Clark is a way to differentiate from uh, the the Steelers Ryan Clark and now the ESPN Ryan Clark. Actually, no, um, that's like, it's pretty good. I, that was entertaining. Uh, no, just what it is is the S in um, my middle name. It's my middle name. It stands for Soto, and uh, my mom's side. Uh, we're Hispanic, English, French, and Spanish. And so that's something I take, uh, you know, something very seriously and dear to me. And, uh, you know, it's wild because, you know, I've kind of grown up and people see me and they're like, there's no way you can be Hispanic. You don't look like Andy Garcia or Ricky Martin. And it's mm-hmm. like, dude, David Ortiz and Yaziel Puig are darker than me. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's believable. So, you know, that's what it was. But that that's a pretty good guess. I think my wife will, uh, my wife will appreciate hearing that one because, uh, yeah, she uses her middle initial too, but no, that's that's pretty good. My my bold prediction is that the the Steelers Ryan Clark is going to need to include his middle name to differentiate from you someday. So, so, so yeah, we're far, 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 far away from that. I think he's fine. <laughs> Stay tuned on that. So, so Ryan, where did you where did you grow up? Yeah, um, kind of all over. You know, my dad was United States military, um, so we just we moved around between my dad's career school and my career. I mean, I would say I've moved more than 20 to 25 times last I counted. Uh, so I just, it's easier for me to tell people homes between South Florida, the East coast and Toronto. So yeah, that's just kind of it. Lifelong East coaster. And, um, you know, I, again, I'd kind of lived everywhere, but you know, this is the first time I've lived on the Pacific ocean and, uh, I'd been out here before, but yeah, we, my wife and I, we really love it. Yeah. We'll get into your career path, which is, uh, just, uh, quite the ride to, to go through your uh your your resume reads like uh i don't know some sort of around the world in 40 days type type journey so, <laughs> so we'll, we'll break that down um we'll, we'll kind of split this into two parts because my, my original plan was to just talk husky basketball and then i saw kind of what i'm alluding to your your resume and and thought more about uh, what an opportunity this is to to hear from a uh, a, a grizzled journalist uh, as yourself so um, we'll talk about the journalism part. When did you decide, and I had it in the notes here, when, how, and why did you decide uh, that the journalism and, and um, you know, this, this, this life that, as we know, doesn't, doesn't pay super well, but um, just the, the ups and downs that come with it. When did you decide to commit to that grind? 
Uh, I would say maybe when I was like 12, there just because uh, it was between this chemical engineering or financial advising slash financial planning. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where engineering is, it's an amazing field, but it wasn't what I loved. And financial planning, the idea of playing God with someone's money is something that just didn't sit well with me. And then when you looked at what happened in 2008 with the markets, you're definitely like, yeah, I'm glad I didn't do it. Um, but with journalism, it was something I just, I genuinely loved. I mean, um, I was published at 13 by 16. I was doing stuff for, uh, you know, sports sections and, uh, yeah, just, it's something I've always kind of enjoyed doing. And I think that's really what I knew. And it was just something that, uh, yeah, the more and more I did it, I decided like, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So, so around that time when you're, when you're, uh, writing stories and, and doing things, it's like early nineties, right? Oh God, no, I'm only 33. So like uh, mid nineties, mid nineties. No, no. Well, like my first thing that got published was like 19. Yeah. So like 97, but like, I really didn't get started writing until I would say 2001, more than 2000, 2001. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it had been a while, but no mid nineties. God, it makes me sound <laughs> like I'm like ancient or something. No, I'm so joking, but yeah, uh, it's something I've been doing for a while. I mean, on and off for a little bit, but yeah, I would say by the time I was a junior or a senior in high school, I graduated 2002. That's when it really started picking up. Do you remember what your, your first published story was about? Um, God, I'm trying to think that's a good one. I don't really remember. It's been so long, but, uh, but I'm sure whatever it was, I, if I read it now, I'd be like, Oh God, <laughs> my name was attached to this. So, yeah. uh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time I go home, there's front and center on the, on the, the fridge is, is this article I wrote for like the, for the school paper, but it got recopied in the like the local paper and it's about how the lunchroom is the center of social interaction I thought, <laughs> I thought i had this like this this social theory down and it's just it's just mortifying to read but i can't take it down because it would it would just break my parents heart but uh but yeah those those kind of early early memories of of writing are, are are special who so who were your like sports idols when you were looking up or when you were growing up um like as in journalism or as in athletes That's or a good question. What's... yeah both i think um, I would say journalism. I, I mean, there was kind of a, a, a few people. Um, one person I actually grew up reading, even though I lived on the East Coast, was Percy Allen at the time. So wow. when I first met him, I was like, I've been reading you since I was 14, and he just looked mortified. Like, thank <laughs> you for making me feel ancient. And uh, that certainly wasn't my extent. But, uh, but yeah, so I mean, I would say guys like Percy Allen. I read a lot of Will Bond, uh, Kornheiser, John Feinstein. Um, Dan Labatard, uh, I mean, just kind of, you know, some of the usual suspects, but then, um, you know, some other people too, uh, people that cover the NHL. So like Pierre Lebrun is someone I read a lot, Bruce Arthur. I mean, really, I just tried to read as much as I could. Uh, Harry Winter, who he covers European soccer. Um, he was at four, four, two for a little bit. And again, just really kind of anyone. Cause I think the thing I've learned as a writer is you never know what you're going to be covering. So if you can read people who, you know, they're experts at their sport. Maybe if you go cover that sport, you can somewhat appear as if you know what you're doing. But I would say as far as like athletes, um, you know, I'll be honest. I think it's kind of more guys who had already had since retired just cause like for me, I think Roberto Clemente is probably my all time favorite athlete. I never saw him play, but you look at the humanitarian work that he did. It was amazing. Uh, Pele, the same thing. Uh, whereas if now, you know, I'll be honest, like as a journalist, uh, I just, 
I don't really cheer for anything or anyone just because you never know who or what you might be covering and uh, and, and things like that. So, I mean, it's kind of, I guess, a, a boring fandom. <laughs> but the only things I cheer for openly now are European soccer and Formula One racing because I know those are two things I'll never cover. And, uh, and so, yeah, those I go all in on. But everything else, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of sports. Um, I like watching certain players. I'm fascinated by certain organizations. But in terms of like a fandom of, oh, my God, X team lost, so my life is ruined, it hasn't been that way for a very long time. That's been beaten out of you for a long time. What was that? That's been beaten out of you for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, again, it's just it's I think it's kind of how you have to look at it, because the point I've made when I've ever talked to college students is and then I even said this to kids at FSU, like, let's say. Uh, you're going to go cover the University of Florida. And if I'm a Florida alum and I see on Twitter through your previous feed that you've said some things about UF that I could be offended by, I'm probably not going to trust you as a journalist. And so I think you have to be really smart about those sort of things. And again, it's one thing if you're 10 years old and you're a fan, but when you're 20, I hate to say it, but the way the current environment is, the second you get a social media account, you're on the clock and it's fair game. And I know you know, that doesn't sound like it's the most, I guess, fair approach, but it's reality at this point. Yeah, finding finding that objectivity is is tough, especially when, I mean, you see the, anyone who gets drafted, they're going to be retweeting something, or, you know, the masses are going to be retweeting something that they had said when they were 17 years old uh, that just d- damns them for uh, for at least a couple 24-hour news cycles. So, yeah, I mean, the, the social media era is something that we'll talk about and kind of something that you have, have kind of worked through in your career um, interesting point on your on your resume, which I saw, and this is just an awesome line, is that you're one of the only people who can say that they've covered uh, Indiana high school basketball, Texas high school football, Minnesota high school f- hockey, and then you didn't mention something that's equally crazy is you've lived in South Florida and the Panhandle, which is just uh, it's a it's a credit to to uh, to your sanity that you're still here. <laughs> your words not mine uh, uh you know the, here's the thing about florida when people ask kind of uh what's the dynamic and i just say honestly florida is three states in one and that there's america there's america hmm. and there's america and so like in america is what you expect of like orlando tampa where it's just it's kind of normal america america is like the panhandle through as far south as like ocala which you know, it is your rural, you know, sort of environment where, you know, it is the Bible Belt and, and, and people are, are very strong in that. Uh, they're very pro-military, good people. It's just different. Whereas if you go to South Florida and, and my part of Florida where it's just like, you know, yes, everybody knows a second language it feels like. I mean, you speak English and or Spanish, English and or Creole or English and or something else. And it's just, it's three very different worlds that how they've survived and coexisted to this point. Uh, it's amazing. But yeah, to what you said, I, yeah, I mean, covering high school football in, in Texas and Indiana high school basketball and high school hockey, Minnesota, it was a really cool experience. Uh, I would say the similarities in the three are they're all three things that people take seriously, but the difference is Texas has so much pageantry. It's to a fault. Like, You'll have school districts that'll pass bond issues just simply to fund football stadiums. And sometimes the football stadiums get built before the actual school buildings. Uh, so it's it's a very different dynamic than in a lot of other places. And you have coaches that make upwards eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollars. Like I said, I, I think I read something was on like John Kitna where it's like he only makes ninety five thousand and that's among the lowest in, in that part of Texas, which 
that tells you all you need to know with only 95,000 a year. Uh, Indiana is such a weird uh, state because before there was no class system. So you think about the movie Hoosiers where your small town team goes up against one of the bigger teams like in Indianapolis. You can't have that today because if you did, there's no – because like for example, when I was living there, um, you had Greg Owen and Mike Conley. There's – look, no team in Indiana was beating that team, big or mm-hmm. small. And, and so that's just how it is. Whereas if with Minnesota, I think Minnesota has the best state tournament for hockey. It's the best state tournament I've ever been to of any high school sport. I mean you have 18,000, 19,000 people who sell out the place uh, for the final I mean, the whole state shuts down. They play in spring break around it. I mean, it's a fun, fun time. Yeah. So, how did you? I mean, was this was this kind of the plan? Did you know that coming out of, of college that that your uh, route through journalism was going to be circuitous and that you would end up doing all of these different jobs that you've done, or because that's just par for the course? Or do you think that your career is is kind of uh, especially obscure? Oh, I think it's the latter. Um, I would love to sit here and tell you I had this all planned out, but you know, I didn't, I think for me, the most important thing was I just really wanted to get to the point where I was covering a major college or pro B and you just do what you can to get to that point. And so, uh, you know, with Indiana, I was looking for a job and, you know, it was in news, but they were like, Hey, we'll let you do some sports. And I did. And, you know, the good thing there is I learned a lot, um, just because something a lot of sports reporters don't have is news experience. So mm-hmm. if there is something like a crime that occurs with a team you cover, you don't have to say, Oh, can the cops reporter do it? You know how to do it. And it makes you a lot more marketable to, to, you know, employers and, um, with everything else. I mean, same thing with Texas. It was, I, you know, I was ready to move on. And initially I was covering business in the oil industry and an opening in sports came open and, you know, North Dakota was different because, my goal was to cover the NHL and, you know, I really thought like that was going to be the springboard for it. And, you know, it didn't work out that way, which it's not the end of the world, but yeah, I mean, like, it's just, that's kind of what it's been. It's, you know, most of the moves I've made have been, you know, trying to get from, you know, where you are at to where you want to be. And I look at where I'm at now and, you know, my wife and I, we've said it like, this is where we want to be. We never want to leave. It sounds like from about 2006, on you haven't said no to a whole lot of projects i have um you know believe it or not like i have you know because the thing is is just i the way i look at it is when you're first starting out you really can't be choosy i mean you're at the mercy of the industry but as you get older you can start to get a feel for what you think is the best job like there have been jobs i've offered that are great jobs but i absolutely had to say no um, and you know, in some ways it was a little tough, but at the end of the day, like it ended up being the best decision. I mean, there are jobs before I took this one, I had to say no to, and I think they'd have been great opportunities, but at the end of the day, it's what's the best thing for you and your family. And for us, you know, coming to the Pacific Northwest was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we'll kind of run through each of your stops just to give the, the audience a taste of, of kind of, it's like your, uh, your IMDB page here of, of all the, uh, the different things you've been involved in. So the first one coming out of, you went to the university of Maine, uh, which my first question is there's kind of this, this theory out there that Maine and, and Washington are, are sister States. Uh, they're like the, the two least religious States and, uh, have like similar kind of, um, I don't know, like environments. Do you do you get that vibe that that Maine and Washington are are uh, are pretty parallel? 
Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, because I think they're both green as all can be. And I mean, there's certainly definitely kind of a looser atmosphere in certain pockets of both. But no, because I, I would still say Maine at times can be a little bit more conservative. And then I also think as it relates to different social issues, Washington is certainly a little bit more open-minded by comparison. And then the other thing, too, is when you drive throughout Maine, it's green and wooded the whole time. The first time I drove through Washington and I got west of Cheney, I was like, this is not the Washington I was sold on. Like, <laughs> this is not trees and, and forests and mountains. Like, it is literally desert and this is not good. Like, I was angry. And then, of course, you get to Ellensburg and when you get to Snoqualmie, it's Washington on steroids. So, uh, so I would say those would be the big differences. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I've been to gosh, Bristol, Maine. Um, and it was, it was okay. like right in the, the heart of January and it was, it was a bunch of, of post-college kids that, that, uh, had no idea about like what, it, what, what the, uh, the risks of driving a Prius down like a, a snowy hill entailed. So <laughs> learn, Maine bit at us real quick, uh, and Washington is is much more forgiving from a from a weather perspective for sure. No, that's very fair. Yeah. Um, so you went from Maine, and then you went to the the Palladium uh, item in Richmond, Indiana, and you you started there by covering uh, kind of the collapse of the Rust Belt industry, um, which yeah. is, which is super interesting. So so what was give us an example of of a story that kind of uh, uh, came from that coverage. Yeah, sure. I'll give you two real quick. I think the first one is there was a, a place called Marvell Industries, which they made uh, like wine cabinets that you would see in someone's home or on a boat. And it was very much this luxury product that as the recession was getting stronger, the need for it was diminishing. And so the company that owned Marvell was able to get a deal in Greenville, Michigan. And so the, the Richmond uh, City Council uh, the economic development uh, group there, they threw everything at these people and they said no. And so it was fascinating to cover it from two perspectives. One, if you're an economic developer, like, I mean, what do you try to throw at these people to get them to stay? And two, the, the employees, because I mean, what does it mean for these people and their families now that they're going to be out of jobs? But I would say the best and the strongest example was there was an auto plant in Connersville, Indiana, um, and, and so this plant had been around forever, you know, like, and that was the thing about Indiana is, you know, it's a state where, you know, my granddad worked at a plant and my dad worked at a plant. So I'm going to work at a plant and my kids are going to work at a plant. And that's just kind of the way it's always been. And so for that to kind of change, it really shook the dynamic because you had people in their late forties and their fifties, they were out of jobs and now they're looking at going back to school and having to reconfigure their lives on top of, you know, having the normal things at that age. Like you've got bills to pay and you've got kids in school. And so when that, when that plant, you know, shuttered bit by bit, you started to see that go on with people. You started to see that town, you know, lose a little bit of its life. And so, yeah, just, it, it gave me, I think a really good idea into just kind of how it is, but also it's the other effects like Richmond high school, it was deemed by John Hopkins to be a diploma mill because you had a low graduation rate. I believe it was 54%. And then on top of that, you also had other issues that were um, problematic there. You had third-generation drug dealers, fourth-generation welfare recipients. I mean, it was just – it was a fascinating city to live in. That's, yeah, I mean, considering where you had come from and, and coming you know, out, from Maine to Indiana – 
uh, going straight into it and and really getting a sense of I mean you can you can live in a state for two years and not really understand it but I feel like when you're immersed in the industry like that 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 gave you a really good sense of the state. I mean, it did. Because, um, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I think the dynamic of every state is different. It's like anyone who comes to Washington, the problems in Walla Walla are not the problems in Wenatchee. The problems in Seattle are not the problems in Spokane and so on and so forth. But with Indiana, I mean, every part of the state that had industry was being hit by this some way or the other. And I think that to me is just kind of the, the most interesting part about when you look at the Midwest right now is – you know, you're trying to see all these states do whatever they can to kind of pick themselves back up. And some have been successful and some haven't been as. But when you look at Indiana, again, it's just it's a place that's really, really interesting because, uh, again, you have the, the Rust Belt aspect to it. The fact that parts of the state are on different time zones. I mean, that the time zone thing is still an issue there. So, again, it's just it's a really fascinating state. And I think even more is like when I was there, we had an editorial board meeting just to give you an idea how long ago this was. And I remember talking to, um, you know, I think he was at that time, I want to say a state senator or a state rep. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember meeting him and, you know, he was a decent enough dude. And, you know, he was like, hey, Ryan, if you ever need anything, let me know. And I was like, sure, no problem. And that guy became Mike Pence. So, yeah, wow, it was. a Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the funny part was I never would have thought in my life Pence would be vice president because at the time, Mitch Daniels was the governor of Indiana. And people were building Mitch Daniels to kind of be the next big thing in the Republican Party. And Mike Pence was just the guy who was there. And so, you know, you look up at 2016 and you're like, wow, it, it really felt like yesterday I was in the Palladium Item, um, you know, editorial board meetings talking with Mike Pence. And now he's the vice president of the United States. So, yeah, it was a kind of a bizarre ride. I had a funny feeling this conversation was going to be a good one, but I did not expect uh, Mike Pence's name to get dropped in, in a first person kind of way. Well, yeah, I mean, it's wild just because, um, you know, like that, that was just it, like covering, like staying in, like in working in Richmond, Indiana is there are some things that you got to do that you never thought you would. So, I mean, like it was meeting Mike Pence, it was covering Bill Clinton, um, it was covering, you know, the Rust Belt industry, it was, you know, covering, you know, crime and running across a 39 year old witchcraft practicing stripper grandmother, like <laughs> this this was life in my first job. It really, really was. So, uh, I mean, I look back on it more fondly now, but at the time I was just like, what circle of Dante's hell is this? And why didn't I read about it when I read Dante the first time? So right. uh, yeah, just, it was interesting. They never mentioned Richmond in, uh, in, in that book, but, uh, so, so got to ask for, for purposes of Indiana. I've, I've never been, uh, but I have friends that are from there and they mentioned the, the Indiana state fair and all the, the, delicious fried food items that are there. Did you, did you ever take, take part in that? Here's the thing I'll say about the Indiana state fair. The food is good, but on the index of how much are we trying to kill you? It's third. Uh. Texas is first. Wisconsin, Wisconsin state fair is designed to kill you because like <laughs> they fry everything, ice cream, butter, cheese, cheese curds. Like they will fry anything. Texas can be that same way, but to be serious, like the Indiana state fair, it has really good food. Um, granted, I haven't been there in a while, but like, I remember one summer, like, like the food was great. Kanye was performing like early Kanye, like wow. right when he made it big, like that's just it. It's like the Indiana state fair is a huge deal. I mean, state fairs, I mean, in the Midwest are big in general and so are the County fairs. But yeah, I mean, here's the thing, Indiana, um, you know, if you work it right, it can be a really cool place to live in. Good, good stuff. So you, you went to the other, 
two thirds of those you've lived in in the uh, the deadly state fairs. So you went to Texas after Indiana and worked at the Beaumont Enterprise. And I'll just pull one one bullet point from your resume here. Um, I'm imagining this to be very similar to to a scene in in uh, in Friday Night Lights with Buddy Garrity and talking about uh, you know, <laughs> talk, talking about about who the who the Dylan Panthers are going to play and, and and the matchups. You were you were on a weekly high school football radio segment, which uh, that's not even really an industry uh, out in Seattle or, or definitely out in Massachusetts, <laughs> but, but it's a, it's a full-time gig down there, I bet. You know, it was wild because it was with a radio station in Houston because, uh, Beaumont, Southeast Texas, it's about, I'd say 50 to 60 miles East of Houston, about 20 miles away from the Louisiana, Texas line. And so it wasn't necessarily a no man's land, but it was one of those things where you had to kind of keep tabs on it. Uh, just cause some of the athletes that came out of there, which I'll get into in a sec, but you know, down there, it is what you think it is in terms of people being very serious about high school football, because the, what, what makes Texas so different compared to a place like Washington is, um, I look at like, let's, what would be example of like a small town be in like Washington. So let's say Centralia. Mm-hmm. Um, so like with Centralia, most people in the state know it is. I drove through it once, or I might have a friend or two from there. Whereas if in a place like Texas, these small towns are known because of where the athletes are from and they've won state championships. So like you take Dangerfield, no one outside of Texas really knows about Dangerfield, but if you've lived there, I think it was 1982 or 1983 Dangerfield went undefeated and they were so good. They only gave up eight points. Six were off of a touchdown, two were off of a safety. And so with these communities, they just take it very, very seriously. And I mean, it's everything from, the small town where, you know, it's this old saying of, you know, last one who leaves, turn the lights out to the big communities like your Dallas, uh, well, the Metroplex in Houston, where it is nothing to see eight, 10, 12,000 people at a high school football game on a Friday night or a Thursday or a Saturday night in one of those metros. I mean, it, the state just takes football really seriously. I, uh, I just did a quick search on Beaumont, and the first, the first name that popped out to me was, uh, was Bubba Smith, who... Yeah. Uh, big star college football player and, and won a Super Bowl. Um, crazy turn of events. He uh, he passed away and was diagnosed with CTE after the fact. And so he's, for the company I work for, is one of the, the brain donors for um, oh, wow. for the Boston University CT study. So I had no idea, but um, he's one of many football players that have that have come from from that uh, from that section of the country. Well, I mean, he has. I mean, he is. And, you know, that's just it is the that area, it's just, it's ridiculous when you think of talent. So just the general area that we covered. So with Port Arthur, um, Steven Jackson, the former Spur came from there. Jamal Charles is from there. You go out to orange, which is where Earl Thomas is from. And I covered Earl mm-hmm. Thomas's alma mater. And, um, you know, you've got some guys out there that are like really, really good. And I mean, like, that's just it. It's like, you know, there's some, Oh, Jay Bruce gone. Yeah. Jay Bruce played at Beaumont Westbrook and Kevin Millar. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, that's just it is like Beaumont has a lot of talent. Like when I was living there, Dave Campbell's Texas high school football, which it's called the Bible and that's not hyperbole. But in fact, like Dave Campbell once came to the area and there were grown men acting like children, like, Oh my God, you're Dave Campbell. Can you (laughs) sign my book? And like, I've been reading the Bible since I was like three feet high. And it's just like, wow, this is really the world I live in now. Uh, but it was, it was so fun though, because I mean like everything you wrote, people cared and, and it was really, really awesome. But yeah, just like 
Texas is so insane for its football. Um, like just in the stories that you could go do and, 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 and all that. So yeah, it just, it was, again, it was one of the best experiences, but like, I think the big difference again, is you look at the facility. So, um, I live in Bothell and I've been to Bothell high and it's a really nice football stadium and Texas. There are places that have double decker press box with elevator attendants and full on working kitchens and meals are catered either by like Carabas or, um, a pizza place or the best ones are the schools where the parents make the food and you have homemade barbecue every single Friday. And like, oh. yeah. And I mean, everybody has their inflatables that they run out through and they have their own smoke and the school songs. And like the best game I covered was Port Natchez Groves in Nederland. They're two neighboring communities. And, you know, P and G has a 10 to 15,000 person stadium with a rubberized track and artificial turf and a high definition jumbotron and like a double decker press box where there's a catwalk. So, um, the camera crews can go out there. Cause if you're sitting so high up, you can just watch the game off the jumbotron. There's ergonomic chairs, you name it. Like, I mean, it sounds like a small college stadium, which in fact, Port Neches Groves has a better facility than the university of Maine there. I said it, but yeah, just that's Crazy. how it is. Crazy. Uh, if, you, if you've ever been to Skyline High School, I think that's as close as you can possibly get uh, in Washington State to to that environment you're talking about. Oh, I've heard. Yeah, because I mean, like, the thing is, I kind of followed Skyline a little bit. Um, you know, yeah, just kind of from a distance because of uh, Max Brown and guys like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard people talk about how serious Skyline is. But yeah, just I mean, Texas is it is its own animal. And it's and I think it has its pluses and minuses but for the most part like i would say it's a positive thing just the thing you worry about is um you know i look at beaumont where they put so much money into the football stadium that building school projects was on hold and it's like guys like why do you go to school to play football or learn and it leads to larger issues that we'll discuss at another time but yeah it just it was a it was an interesting experience right that's a question you don't necessarily want want the answer to um so moving from texas you go to the form of fargo moorhead which is in north dakota the, as in that fargo uh and you covered high school hockey which um you, i wish we could spend a ton of time because it's not something i know well but i'm gonna try and connect it to to uh the seattle situation you know what it, it looks like to have a fervent <laughs> hockey environment and what that takes and kind of the ingredients that go into that uh how would you say that seattle would would do in in terms of of cultivating that that sort of um hockey fandom that that is so strong in minnesota or in north dakota i'm sorry well, no, no. I mean, I was I covered more Minnesota because we were right on the right, line. Right, right. You know, I th- I think you know what makes Seattle a, an interesting place, and what I think could be a good contender for a strong market here is people support sports, and not only do they support sports, but I, I think they can really get behind something. And if a team does well enough, you see it start to roll, like we're seeing with Huskies basketball. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that helps Seattle, another thing that helps Seattle too, is. You've got two WHL franchises here with the Everett Silver Tips and the Thunderbirds. And so you already have a base of people who they know this game. And not only that, but it just allows you to be able to say you have a pro sports league. And given that in winter, if the Seahawks aren't in the playoffs and right now there's Husky basketball, there is an open hole for it. And so, yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of ingredients. And then the other thing, too, that helps is you've got Vancouver right up the road and they're in a little bit of a rebuilding stage. And so, yeah, just to be able to have a rival right there where you can kind of grow with them and, 
and see how that works. I think that'd be incredible for Seattle. So yeah, I think it has all the makings to be a good NHL spot. Absolutely. And seeing how the uh, the Vegas Golden Knights have done this year and going from from expansion to immediately competitive um, in the league is, is definitely a good sign for uh, for expansion to be to be a worthy cause and, and create something that's an instantly uh, contending product in Seattle. I mean, if you're in Seattle, you hope so. Because I mean, I think with Vegas is there is a lot of perfect storm factors. Like Mark Andre Fleury, if he played any other place, would not be expendable. But he goes to Pittsburgh. Well, he's at Pittsburgh, where there's Matt Murray, who's about a decade younger than him and just as good. I mean, and then James Neal, who floated from place to place, and John Lamarcheau, who floated, you know, a little bit. You know, so I mean, I think it's all those factors. But the thing that you want if you're the NHL is you're seeing enough good talent come through and you know, you feel, Hey, why not see if you can spread out to one more team? So we'll wait and see. Yeah, definitely. Uh, moving, moving along, you, you went to the, to the Lansing state journal. So staying in the Midwest, uh, the one thing I noticed there is that, that you were editing and recording stories on your iPhone, which is awesome. Um, so that was, that was probably not something that you expected to be doing when you were at Maine is, uh, is doing all of your, your editing work on a phone. Well, you know, no, because I think at that time it's 2006 and video, we're just so used to actually using cameras. Whereas if now, I mean, your phone does everything for you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that just says a lot about how quickly technology can move. But yeah, I mean, one of the questions I remember you asked me, um, you know, we kind of went through our rundown is how much journalism's changed. And, you know, it's a ton. I I mean, I don't know if I want to say I felt like my degree was obsolete, but there are just things that you look at now that 2006 weren't even a discussion. Like what is the best way to shoot with your phone? And, um, you know, what are the ethical policies of using social media? What is social media? Um, I mean, like that's just it is like the, the things that we're dealing with now, we didn't have to deal with back then. And frankly, the things that we dealt with back then and we still don't want to discuss now like maybe those are things we could have dealt with back then too. So, I mean, you know, yeah, I think everybody looks at college and goes, why didn't we learn this or that? But just when you think about technology and the way it's changed, yeah, absolutely. Journalism is not what it was 10 years ago. It wasn't even what it was five years ago, if we're being honest. Yeah. So I've, I've heard the, the, um, the advice that it's kind of frequent. I know, uh, Michael Smith has said <coughs> it before of, um, it's, it's not uncommon, but if, you know, if you want to, if you want to be a journalist, you know, just write, just, just do everything. Don't worry about majoring in journalism necessarily. But when you were growing up that, 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 necess- that wasn't necessarily the case is, is that was the kind of the more pipeline, um, funneling system at that point. Yeah, it was, but you know, I think the kind of danger in someone like Mike Smith saying don't major in journalism is God. And I feel like old white hair, tad foot, the former <laughs> Miami president by saying this, but I mean, it kind of does open up the idea of things like ethics becoming grayer and grayer each and every day. And I mean, I think it helps to have some training in the industry. Now, don't get me wrong. Like it's a job that you can learn and, you know, go along as you please. But at the same time, you know, it's going to certainly help to have someone that has a background that has that experience. Cause I mean, like, for example, I, I will use Bill Simmons. So the thing that concerns me about Bill Simmons, and I've said this and people look at me like I have a third arm growing out my chest is, You know, he kind of opened the door for all this in the sense that, you know, people said, well, if he can do it, why can't I? Well, here's the dangerous part in that. You're watching Bill Simmons on NBA Countdown and you have Magic Johnson, Jalen Rose, Michael Wilbon, Bill Simmons. Here's why this is a a skewed picture. At least 
Jalen Rose and Magic Johnson played in the league. Michael Wilbon covered the league. Bill Simmons was a fan. That's it. Like you could pull anybody off the street to say what he says and do what he does. And the problem that I think journalism is facing right now is, you know, we say that we want to be inclusive, which we should be inclusive in terms of who we speak to, who we write about, the issues we cover. But in terms of who does it, then this I learned in J school, and this is still very much true today. There is a gatekeeping aspect to it. And I think if we're going to be gatekeepers, we have to be selective about, you know, who's in this industry. And if they're going to be this in, in this industry, do they have the credentials necessary to handle certain things? So I'll say this and, you know, get off my high horse. But I look at sports journalism versus that of, you know, let's say political journalism. It's nothing to see a 23, 24-year-old cover the New England Patriots or some big beat. But, like, do you think the average 23-year-old would be ready to cover the White House? God, no. And I think that's just something that we have to keep in mind going forward is, you know, let's just be smart about the decisions we make. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a, an interesting issue, and it's it's not as as binary as you know don't you know if you want to do journalism, don't write because uh, or or don't don't major in journalism because there are aspects of that program that that can provide you with a lot. Um, so I think it comes down to to maybe retooling what that major is and 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 the the the, the tools that we provide. Uh, students coming through a program like that, but the problem is, is that's an ever-changing field, and so it's, uh, you know, setting a curriculum and trying to capture everything within within two or three years that you that you need to be a journalist is uh, it, it's tough. And I think that you're you're living example that you learn all those things, uh, kind of cutting your teeth and and out in the field. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think part of the the, the concern of of journalism in its current state is. It's it's always changing, but the problem with the people who were overseeing this 20, 30 years ago is they looked at the internet when it first became a thing and thought, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like, this will never last. And, like, that's just it, is there's an arrogance to it. And so, like, you think back 110 years ago, everybody said, why do I need to read a newspaper when I can just listen to the news on radio? And then tw- 50 years later, it was... Why do I need to read a newspaper when I can just watch everything on television? And newspapers survived radio and TV. Mm-hmm. And then the internet came along. And it was the same attitude of, why do we care? We've already survived radio and TV. Well, here's the difference. Radio was something that was, you know, it was in one place. You just couldn't up and take it with you left and right. Television was something that was kind of the same thing. The internet, you can't escape it. You just... You can't. It's everywhere, no matter any all the different devices that we have. I mean, hell, my wife and I think have like 10 devices that are Internet capable mm-hmm. in our house. And that's not including our television. So, right. again, like it's just it's the idea that like you have to think that way in the sense of like, you know, look, you might be the thing right now. But remember, there's always going to be something that that lasts. And I think the thing with journalism is this. I don't see journalism dying. I just don't. I see newspapers struggling because you know, fewer and fewer people want the print product, but at the end of the day, like people are always going to want information. So yeah, if I'm a pressman, I'm probably a little bit worried about the next 20 years, but if I'm a journalist, it's a little shaky, but at the end of the day, people want information. And you look at the era we live in, people want more information now than ever before. So it's just about how do you meet that need? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect segue talking about the kind of catering to the need for information, because um, that is that is kind of your job uh, as a beat writer. Um, you were a beat writer for uh, Warchant.com. Um, 
I, I, no, you're a beat writer for, for the Sentinel, am I right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I covered high schools and did a little bit of um, some Marlins, Panthers, helped out on Dolphins every now and again, some recruiting. And then, yeah, I went to War Chant to cover Florida State. Yeah. So so as a from a college athletics beat perspective, how can you compare uh, University of Washington to Florida State? Um, that's a, that's a loaded question, but, but is, is the, uh, the core ingredient of what makes a good beat writer the same at, 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 in Seattle as it is in, in, uh, in Tallahassee? I think it's the same, no matter where you're at, whether you're covering Florida state, Washington, um, North Dakota state, sisters of the poor, Mayville state. It doesn't matter. The, I think the number one thing that you have to realize as a beat writer, if you're going to cover it is like, we live in, live in a 24 seven atmosphere. And it's not to say that you have to feel compelled to write everything, but understand that, like, even when there are days where you want to take off, the news doesn't stop because you want it to. And so it's just, I think, about being smart and monitoring things. But it's also about if you're going to cover something, what are you doing that, A, your competition isn't doing? And B, what's something that you can be doing or, or want to do that you've heard people talk about, or maybe you haven't heard people talk about, but you're just naturally inquisitive about sort of the order of different things. And I think that's just kind of it. But as far as, you know, Florida state and Washington, um, you know, there's some similarities. I mean, look, Washington's had a proud tradition in football and basketball. Florida state's had a proud tradition in football, not maybe as proud in basketball, Mm -hmm. but I say really the gigantic difference in the fans are, are this, I think down there it is, it is taken to the point where like I've seen FSU win games and people are happy for a week. I've seen them lose games and people are depressed for like when they got crushed by Lamar Jackson, Louisville, which Lamar's another kid I covered in high school, really good kid. Never thought he'd become what he's become. But like, I look at when they, when Lamar Jackson ran all over Florida state, like there were people who were like genuinely depressed and angry. And like some people were depressed in the sense of like, how did we lose this much? Like why? And then there are people who are so angry where they're like, there must be firings. There was a guy who created a website called firecharleskelly.com. We're on this website. He talked about how God spoke to him about why the defensive coordinator at FSU <laughs> needed to be fired. Like, I don't know if the URL still exists, but it's just like, that's that world. Whereas if out here, people were disappointed they lost to Penn state I'm sure they were like, man, why didn't X, Y, and Z happen differently? But then they were like, well, life goes on. They'll be good next year. Let's hope X, Y, and Z return moving on. So that's, I think, is the big difference. Yeah, uh, FSU Twitter is is notorious um, for just an unrelenting and just insatiable uh like thirst for for more from their from uh from the football team any any fun fsu twitter stories or or is that just a section of your life you want to block off no no you're fine <laughs> um i'm trying to think like because with us we dealt more with the message boards and fsu twitter um but like with the message boards you know it's just there are some people there it was a very interesting culture because um like a lot of them, you know, they, they love their school. There's obviously they, they do, but like, I would just say like the best examples I saw, like on the message board is so Florida state changed its logo. God, what must have been like four or five years now. Mm. And there's a group of fans that every time they lose, it's the new logos fault. <laughs> they're like, we, you know, they're like, we never had these problems under the old logo. And it's like, God, it's like a logo change. Has no, if anything, you changing your logo and design 
it makes kids want to come there even more. Like, it's one thing, like, you know, if you're the New York Yankees where you've had this, like, traditional look for so long to where, like, you maybe make a few tweaks here and there, but, like, with FSU, it's like, yeah, there were some aspects of that football uniform that looked kind of dated. Like, and if you're trying to recruit kids, especially in an era which is Oregon has shown, the more uniform options you can provide, the better, then, you know, why not? But, yeah, I mean, like, I would just say this, like, there were personally experiences, like, I never had with FSU Twitter that were bad, but I know people who have and who did. And, uh, yeah, just, it, it, you know, it is it, it is unlike anything you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I know I know that college football writers, um, like the, the, the fine bombs of the world and the, you know, the, the old Danny Cannells and people who, who um, speak from a national perspective have, have uh, some interesting things to to say about FSU Twitter and, and just kind of the uh, the, the the things that get sent their way um, from that. So actually, it's funny. I remember when when UW changed their logo from from the W to uh, to the, this kind of it was supposed to be a husky, but it was this this turned out it was colloquially called a, a weasel because of the way it looked. I don't know if you you ever came across that logo uh, and I can kind of relate. Like the, there was similar outrage and and it kind of. Um, it was, it was just kind of, it's one of those things that if things are going well, it's, it's an easy thing to, to tag onto. And if, if not, then, uh, um, then, or if things are going well, then no one cares. But if things aren't, then it's like, Oh, gotta be the logo. Right. But like, here's the thing that I think some people that school kind of lost sight of. And I've said this and this, I don't care if they hear me say they're good at everything. (laughs) Like, like my, my last full season there. They made the playoffs in every single sport. Football was 10 and three and had another top five recruiting class. Basketball went to the NCAA tournament for the first time in like four or five years, had five stars, had another good top 10 recruiting class. Softball was out away from going to the college world series. Baseball went to the college world series beach volleyball, which is only three years old, finished second the year before fourth that season caught women's soccer ended up going to the like they are good at everything like that like that's just it is like it'd be one thing if they were a university where all their hopes and dreams were placed in the one sport and you know they just they came up short but like they're good at everything like it, it, like in some ways it's almost first world problems where it's just like they're good at everything and because they're good at everything they think they can win at everything in some years and in reality that's just not the case because like you look at FSU baseball, like year in and year out, FSU baseball is really good. But the reason people are so critical of them right now is you look south at UF, UF's the best college baseball program in America. And I'm sorry, but like you really want to make an FSU fan angry? Watch Florida be good at something. No, watch Florida be great at something. <laughs> That'll yeah. really drive them over the wall. Well, uh, they've had uh, they've had a good run where they don't have to worry about Florida football for, for the last three or four years. Here, so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> gr- you know, grim that, times in Gainesville. Oh man, you know, and just covering that game, it's just so fascinating because, like, I think I learned more about the state of Florida and its dynamic sitting in a bar watching FSU and UF fans interact. It was, oh man, it was it was a fascinating time. That's that that's worth a book someday. So keep keep that in your your uh, your writing hat for sure. Uh, we uh, we're gonna end here talking about the the team you cover and and um, the the. 
surprises that have come with that and you know with with the craziness that has come with with UW basketball um even since we booked this interview which was which was early last week um just how much has has changed in the program in, in almost you know just over a week and a half uh with a couple big wins um has probably in- increased your uh your hecticness of your life um so what did you know about UW basketball before taking the beat obviously you know you heard coaching change and, and all that but but what was your your kind of you know 3,000 miles away perspective of uh, of this team. Here's the thing. I was familiar with Mike Hopkins because, I mean, he was at Syracuse, and that was a team that was in the ACC with Florida State. So I was more than aware of Mike Hopkins, but to know, like, hey, he had kind of built up this reputation in the basketball community, that was news and, 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 and a very interesting thing to learn when I was writing, you know, three-part profile series on him. Um, but as far as this team itself, I mean, look, they were nine and 22 and two and 16. And it was jarring just because they had Markel Fultz and everybody from afar just had to ask, how do you have the number one pick and you're under 500? Like not just one or two games, but like a lot under <laughs> 500, you know? So it was, it was something that, you know, you looked at with a new coach, you think, okay, they'll win more than two conference games. They'll win more than nine regular season games. But no one really knows what to expect. Whereas if now, like, I don't think that program internally has changed. I think guys are more amplified and there's a greater belief, which I think the belief was already there. But now it's just it's it's stronger. Whereas if everything I think around that program has changed, because I remember my first game, you had kids in the dog pack, but not like it was Saturday against Arizona. You had fans who were there, but not like it was. So, like, I think about when they played Gonzaga, and it was after the Kansas win. At least 30 to 40% of, uh, of, of Heck Ed was Gonzaga fans. And when Gonzaga went up, those fans, they were just so loud. They drowned out the Washington fans. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Saturday, man, anytime the U of A fans start tuning U of A, Washington fans just quickly, you know, just responded. So yeah, I would say that's been the big difference. Yeah, it's it's been it's been fun. Even, even that Gonzaga game was certainly um, uh, kind of a, a humbling moment coming off of the Kansas win, where it's, you don't really know what you had at that point. You hadn't you hadn't followed up that win with uh, with another big win. Uh, hadn't beat USC yet, so um, that was that was a uh, kind of. Kind of the 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 gut check moment, and then since then it's just been it's been uh, an incredible ride. So in a game, you know, you, this last this last week with the Arizona State and the Arizona game, you saw two two just you know uh, you know cardiac testing games with down to the wire you know last couple minutes uh, type games. Uh, obviously, you know you don't have a rooting interest in this, but it, how how hard is it not to get caught up in kind of the uh, the momentum of the game and and just sink into into fandom mode at that point yeah it, it's not hard i mean because i mean again like for me it doesn't matter who i'm covering i'm never going to be a fan because i think the second you become a fan like it it kills you as a journalist it kills your credibility sure because like i've been at places where i've had people like when i covered fsu like i once had someone come up to me and say are you a fan no have you ever been a fan no. Okay, good. Because the reason why is I don't want to hear from other fans. I want to hear from someone that's going to be honest with me. And so when I look at Washington, like right now, like to me, the biggest question I had going into Arizona wasn't so much could they compete with Arizona? Because I mean, those games have been close in the past. We saw what they did against Kansas earlier this year. It was just more of how can they handle someone like DeAndre Ayton? And because I mean, you think about Washington, if they're playing a team that has guards, like we saw against Arizona State, 
with that three guard system of Chris Noel and Thibel, they can compete. But interior wise, like, yes, we've seen them rebound with teams, but at the same time, like Arizona had the sort of athleticism and size that, you know, I think people kind of just, yeah. I mean, it was, it was something to, to seriously consider. Cause look, you look at Deandre Ayton and he's, Probably going to be the number one pick in the draft. Oh yeah, but I think, but but you look at the like Dusan Ristich, the week before Dusan Ristich was the Pac-12 Player of the Week. Like Dusan Ristich, I mean, again, we forget he had 21 and 10 against Washington, and that to me is the thing I can I, I kind of wonder about with them going forward is like with teams that are bigger in the paint, how will you do it? Because like yes, Kansas was longer, they were bigger. It helped that Azubuki got in foul trouble. But I mean, like, as far as like to your question about like, how do you cover a game like that and you're not caught up in the emotion of it? I mean, it's simple because you realize I've got to write this thing. It's easy for fans because when it's over, they can go and celebrate and do whatever. But like for a reporter, that's when the real work begins in terms of asking, you know, yourself, like, what's the best way to attack this story? What are other stories to do? I mean, you guys are out here eating the sausage where I'm just sitting here like, is it pork? Is it Italian? Is it right. kielbasa? Like, what is it going to be? So, f- from that same same thing, when you're when you're in the kitchen, kind of uh, concocting the the stories for this for the CW basketball team, what stories do you find the most compelling about how this how this season has gone on? For, I mean, just for example, <coughs> if you would no no worries, if you would ask me uh, in October how many feature stories have been written on Dominic Green uh, by February, I would have said. Definitely zero, uh, but now he, he's got you know in the Times and and you wrote about him. Um, so so what what stories have have you seen emerge that that you find the most interesting about this UW team? Um, just certain things like I think with one for me, my favorite has been Michael Carter, just because seeing him shoot after home games in an empty gym. At first, I just kind of thought he was screwing around, but then to sit there and talk to him and his dad about why they do it you're just like, wow. And then for Michael himself to say, I don't want to be the guy who you read about on TV or you see, you read about in a newspaper, you see on TV that got arrested for doing something stupid. So I think it's stuff like that. But I mean, look, I think the thing is no matter how good or bad a team is, you're going to come across with feature stories. And I think this is the big difference when you're covering FSU, there were feature stories there. And I wrote about all sorts of things that the problem there is no matter what that team did, it's a football school. Like you could write a story about, I don't know, Jonathan Isaac doing something that no one else has done and it'll get read. But if you write, Hey, there's a four star linebacker that's going to commit. People are going to gravitate towards that because traditionally that's what FSU has been. Whereas if out here, I mean, look, football is the thing everybody's talking about, but with each win and each week, basketball grows in momentum. And I think that's just for me, the big difference right now is just, you know, I think people are going to read whatever they can about basketball. And I mean, look, that's just it is, you know, this team right now, like people are kind of growing with this team and, you know, they're saying and doing all the right things in addition to winning that's making this area really buy in. And so, yeah, there's been quite a few stories that I've enjoyed doing. There's a few stories that I'm going to do that I think will turn out well. And yeah, again, it's just, it's been a, it's been a fun time covering this team. Yeah. And it starts with the top. Um, I, I think I can I can say that I, I I'm among thousands of Seattle fans uh, who have fallen in love with Mike Hopkins and and just the the persona that is. Um, how is he different? You've you've covered a lot of coaches in a lot of different levels. How is he different, or how is he maybe even the same as as some of the the other more successful coaches that you've been around? 
he's unlike any coach I've ever covered. There we go. Because, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm serious because, like, I think every coach has their kind of unique quirks to them. And, you know, like, I, for example, because I did John Clayton show earlier today, and he asked that kind of same question. And I'm like, defensively, obviously, he's very similar to Jim Beheim. That's who we learn from. But even with personalities, Hopkins is a different guy than Beheim. He's a different guy than Krzyzewski, uh, Roy Williams, Leonard Hamilton, different coaches I've covered. Uh, I mean, Hopkins is just, he's a different guy in that sense of, he admitted, like, I'm a 49-year-old going on 18. And, like, you know, you hear stories about coaches who, you know, will try to relate to their kids with music. And more often than not, it comes across as this, you're this older guy and this feels awkward and forced. Whereas if with, like, Mike Hopkins, he's sitting here telling you stories about Meek Mill and how they're hanging in the studio and they call his son at 1030 at night so Meek Mill can give his son a shout-out. And it's like, there's nothing that feels forced because you're like, yeah, I could see Mike Hopkins hanging out with Meek Mill just because when I did a profile on him, I asked him, like, how he met his wife. And he was like, oh, on our first date, I tried to kiss her and she shut me down. <laughs> and, like, we didn't date again until her mom was like, you need to ask her out. And and. We, we went on a second date. So, I mean, that's just it. It's like he's this guy that, like, if you don't know him, it's like anybody. You're kind of like, okay, what's he about? But after, like, ten minutes of talking to him, I was just like, God, he might be the most fascinating human being I'm ever going to cover. And <laughs> so far, like, he is. Like, he's walked into press conferences speaking Spanish. Like, he's walked into press conferences high-fiving people. Like, he's walked out of press conferences, like, hugging people like the other day he walked out of a press conference and he told hsa voice which is you know the 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 chinese language yep um you know radio station and publication he told them he's like if there is anything i can do to help you guys do it i've never ever 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 seen a college coach take the student media like that ever in my career so yeah that's the difference is he's the he is unlike anything i've ever seen that is that is incredible how's it how's his spanish it's okay. Like at first, like when he said it really fast, um, because like, I speak it the way he said it so fast, I was like, is this Spanish or Japanese? Cause, uh, he just said it like in such a quick pace, but his Spanish isn't bad. He's, he's decent. That's, that's, uh, that's good to know. I would not have expected that. Uh, I think that I'll count that as like the most fascinating, uh, or like the most interesting hop story because, uh, I don't want to say something or spoil something uh, that you'll publish at a later date about hop. But, um, yeah, he, he has been an, an absolute boon and, and um, I think coming in, you know, you looked at his record when he took over for Bayheim and, and he was below 500 in that little stint. Um, people just thought X's and O's, like what's what's this going to be with the zone? But I don't think anyone knew or expected how much that they would get uh, just from a human personality level um, to, to, to cover and to watch out here. You know, I mean, it's just it's interesting because I think anytime a new coach comes in, everybody's skeptical about what will be because i think in a perfect world everybody wants a new coach to win a national championship and go undefeated but we know that's not reality because if it was and the previous coach would still be there and so i don't think anyone knew what to expect with him from a personality standpoint from his approach of winning games the whole nine but we did a story recently actually about why guys stayed and everybody kept saying they talked to hopkins and they were just like this is too good to be true. And then they, when they got to see how he operated, they're like, okay, maybe things can happen. And when you look at them now, I mean, you know, Hey, he's got that team thingy. They can go out and play and beat anybody, which I mean, you look at that zone defense. I'd kind of feel that same way too. And it's like, I keep saying about Washington, 
imagine if they could consistently score the basketball. Mm-hmm. Then they'd be really dangerous. I mean, they're dangerous to begin with. But, like, that's just it. It's like, you know, he's a guy that's gotten kids to buy and believe. He's done different tactics. Um, I mean, whether it's, you know, listening to the same music, talking to guys individually on the side, the, the, the team watching movies together, the whole Braveheart thing to get confidence. And it's just those coaches are willing to do anything they can, not just to help these kids win, but, you know, to help them understand that, like, you can do anything in life. It's just a matter of how much you apply to it. Definitely, definitely. Uh, so last question, then we'll get you out of here. Uh, you've got some sure. signing, signing day stuff to, to cover. Um, but you've probably been around some teams where it might be a little too much too soon and, you know, expectations kind of uh, kind of blow out of proportion because, you know, they're, they're not supposed to be this good. And then I can kind of go one of two ways of either it, it keeps going down that path or, um, you know, the bubble pops. So what, what do you think the vibe of this of this Husky team is? Are, are they... Are they kind of, you know, eye in the sky or of like, wow, this is this is amazing and, and, and dwelling on on kind of the, the recent success or are they are they laser focused on uh, on what's ahead? They are laser focused because like it, it was so bizarre because like in most cases, coaches and players want to celebrate that moment. And it's not that they didn't, but they were just kind of like, this is cool. We'll celebrate it today and maybe some tomorrow. But you know we've got Oregon and Oregon State at their places, right? And they're just – I mean, like, they get it. You know, I mean, Hopkins gets it because, like, um, you know, I think the, the things that they'll talk bigger picture about that they will dwell on is it's getting more fans back in that building. It's getting the dog pack in that place. It's having people recognize that, like, what, you can take pride in watching Washington basketball again. Like, that's something they'll dwell over. But in terms of a particular win or a loss, I think if anything, they'll dwell more over a loss than a win because like they'll tell you about Arizona and this and that. But if you want to ask them, Hey, what do you think about what happened against Utah? They'll go in greater detail on that. So I don't think this is something that's temporary or short term. I think these guys get it because I think for the guys like Thibel and crisp and Dickerson and green, they went through last year. They know what that hell is like. If you look at those freshmen who've come in, They've all come from programs that won in high school. They're winning now. And I think the biggest thing that Washington is doing that, you know, we don't really talk about, but we will for this. After all these home games, what I keep seeing is you keep seeing all these local high school kids from places like Garfield, Rainier Beach, you name it. And they all hang around and they all linger and they shoot ball. And, you know, they get a chance to kind of play on that court after watching guys like Jalen Noel play. And I'm telling you, between Washington winning, winning with local kids, the fact that Will Conroy is kind of like the Pied Piper of mm-hmm. things around here because everybody knows and loves Will Conroy, as I'm figuring out, on top of Cam Dollar's local connections, on top of the fact that you've got dudes who are like, yo, come play for Hop because he gets us. Like, it's just fascinating to see what this program will be in three to five years. It really will be. A, a program that is uh, seemingly on the, on the cusp of a turnaround, and I'm not going to not say – uh, that that you have something to do with it, Ryan. Uh, you've you've been tremendous. In I your- don't. <laughs> <laughs> I trust me. I like. I I would love to sit here and be like, it's all because. No, it is because. Like honestly, like Mike Hopkins knows what he's doing. He has a staff where two guys have been head coaches before. He's got a young assistant in Will Conroy who will do anything for the program, anything for the kids. I mean, like you just. It's it's a perfect storm of people who they all understand. It's not about them. It's about something greater. Because, like, I'll tell you now, I've covered teams that have had a lot of talent, 
but there's been some problems of guys thinking it's about them. Whereas if you look at everybody on that team, I don't get a sense that one guy thinks he's above it all. I think they all kind of understand they can't win without each other. And that they seem like they genuinely like one another, which that's not always the case. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, for as many sports teams as you've covered, you know that that's not the case. So, uh, Ryan, you, p- you play a big part in articulating that message of what's going on to the team to, uh, to certain fan bases that are uh, 3,000 miles away from their team. So I appreciate your work. Um, those in Seattle do as well. Um, tell everyone where to find you and, and maybe let people know about what's, uh, what's coming on the pipeline with signing day stuff and all that at the, at the TNT. Sure. Well, the Tacoma News Tribune.com. It's our Washington Husky section. Pretty easy to find. If you want to follow me on Twitter, which I you should. highly you recommend. Should. No, no, no. My, my, my wife is just like, why did I do this? But I think she means more on marriage. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, my, my Twitter handle is Ryan underscore S underscore Clark. And as far as the things coming down, um, you know, we've got a national signing day primer looking at, you know, who are the one or two guys Washington may or may not get going into Wednesday, but also, after signing days over, who are the five freshmen that could possibly play a role in 2018 that could, you know, help Washington get to the CFP? And as far as basketball, I'll just leave it as this. There's a little bit of a signing day story there as there's a player on that team that if they had not played basketball and they had gone to football, they'd be a third generation legacy and possibly the next great thing in their family's history. So there's a lot going on. Great stuff, Ryan. I will read all of it as I've read all of your stuff this year. Thank you so, so much for coming on. This is awesome. Hey, no problem. Thanks again. Yeah, take it easy, Ryan. Don't say I didn't warn you. Ryan Clark is your guy to follow uh, for Husky basketball news, Husky football news when that gets rolling around too. He does a great job on the beat for the Tacoma News Tribune. Tons of information, tons of knowledge spread on the pod today. Thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on. Thanks for listening. 